Uh, it's such a joy to be with you. Uh, no better place to be than with the Lord's people during the Lord's day. So please open your Bibles to Philippians. For those who are visiting, we have been working through the letter to the Philippians. So please open to Philippians chapter 2, right after Ephesians. We're going to be reading from verses 1 through 11. And you remember the context, I hope. Would you please stand for the reading? Here's the word of the Lord. So, if there is any comfort in Christ, any consolation from love, any fellowship from the Holy Spirit, any affection and compassion, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full accord in one mind. Do nothing, nothing from selfishness or selfish ambition, nothing from conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Please be seated. Was this Spurgeon who said, I may know all the doctrines of the Bible, but unless I know Christ, none of those doctrines can save me. So Lord, we ask you, we beg you that we may know Christ and Him, and him crucified. Help me to be faithful. I pray that you'd chain my heart and my mouth to your word, and I pray that you chain the ears of the con congregation to your word. Help us. All of us have responsibilities here, Lord, so help us. We need you. Holy Spirit, we beg you to do the work that no man can do, saving, changing, transforming. So we pray that you'd be working in our assembly this morning. We pray for the other churches in Salem. We pray to bless your people, bless your flock, strengthen your church. Lord, how we need strong churches in this area. So wake up those who are sleeping spiritually, physically, and help your people to follow after you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Here we come to Philippians chapter 2. And as I was thinking about this beautiful passage... I was reflecting upon some breathtaking places, some amazing places in the world that we can go and just be in awe of the beauty and majesty. So, I thought about Petra, the city of Petra in, the, in Jordan, or the Danum Valley in Southeast Asia, the Niagara Falls, for those from the south, we have the true waterfalls there, that's the... Cataratas do Iguaçu, or Iguaçu Falls, the biggest waterfall, I believe, in the world. Beautiful, beautiful. 
Oh, how about Mount Everest? How about the Cradle Mountain in Tasmania? But there are also museums, beautiful museums throughout the world. The National Archaeological Museum in Athens, the Prado Museum in Madrid, the Egyptian Museum in Cairo, and the British Museum in London. Beautiful museums. But what is fascinating is there are always two groups of people when you come to these beautiful, breathtaking places. There are those who can spend three seconds and they're okay. That was enough. Three seconds, it's, that's enough. I'm good. And those who can spend 30 hours, 30 days watching, beholding, appreciating, watching for the uniqueness of each aspect of the location. And today we come to one of those majestic places in the Bible. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11 is one of those places. I would say it's analogous, comparable to those breathtaking sights. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is a majestic mountain peak towering over the surrounding countryside. It's a pinnacle of theological truth piercing the heavens and probing the mystery of the Incarnation. And like the two groups of people, we have two options. We can hurry our way through here or we can take our time. And you guys know me, my limitations. <laughs> We're going to spend some time here. But let me tell you with all honesty that all of us, we can spend hours, months, years studying this passage and we will never, never be able to climb to the, to the top of this mountain here. We will never be able to touch the bottom of the shore. It's so profound. It's so deep. It's so beautiful. It's so rich. This portion of the Bible has been the delight of many Christians. It's one of the main readings on, Psalm, on, on Palm Sunday, according to some church liturgies. It has been the center of much Christological controversy. The kenotic theory, the ontological and functional economy of the Trinity, the issue of the hypostatic union, the Council of Chalcedon, the Arian controversy, all rooted in this passage here. So here is how some scholars describe this beautiful passage. One scholar says, this passage is the climax of the argument of the whole letter. In saying this, I mean that the arguments both preceding and following draw their force from this passage which poetically narrates Christ's status and activity, in addition to being a crucial component to the letter as a whole, this is one of the most theological significant passages in the New Testament. Few other passages in the New Testament have generated more scholarly literature. So much to read, so much to study. Another scholar says, Philippians 2, verse 6 through 11, is one of the most scrutinized passages in the Pauline corpus, in the letters of Paul, as questions abound regarding its origins, purpose, format, and theological components of its inherent Christology. Here one more, Lynn Kohex, she says, one of the most beautiful passages in the New Testament is Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11 in which Christ's incarnation, work of salvation, and exaltation are presented with compelling force and a poetic economy of words. We, to borrow the words of Exodus, we are standing upon holy ground. That's one of those passages that require us much attention, much sobriety, 
And the temptation, honestly, the temptation and when you come to a passage like that is to rip this out of context. It's so beautiful, it's so profound, that it's easy and tempting for us to just remove this passage out of the context. And that's what happens. Thank you. Thank you. And that's what happens, especially when it comes to Christological debates or debates about the nature of Christ. We often come to this passage and we remove completely out of the context. So we need to fight with all our power and strength to not remove this passage out of the context. So many passages in the Bible, and especially in Philippians. Philippians is one of those books that champions the, the text out of context. Oh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Wait, wait, what is the context of that passage? Or this beautiful section here about Christ. What is the context? So, I'm going to spend some time here showing you the importance of knowing the context. The text has a context, and its context is fundamental in order for us to grasp the original purpose and thus the, how we can apply. If we don't know what the text means, we cannot apply it to our lives properly. And one of the things we can see is the repetition of the Greek word phronel. Phronel. And if you remember, this Greek word is a deep word that we don't, don't have a, an equivalent in English. But it's related to a pattern of thinking, looking at things, thinking deeply and affecting our affections. That's why in chapter 1, remember when Paul is talking about his sure that the Lord will complete His work in the Philippians. And he says, and that's right for me to do what? Depending on the version you, you have. The ESV says, it's right for me to feel this way. But it's actually this word, it's right for me to think, to be convicted about this. So you see the repetition of the word. Paul is exhorting, calling them to have the same phronel, the same mind. Twice in verse 2. Then in verse 3, he used this word for the humility of mind. And now in verse 5, he says, have this mind. And then the rest of the, the, the other verses gives the example of this mind. Another thing, another observation, so we keep the text in context. The repetition of words and sounds. As, as you, imagine if you are in the first century sitting in the church there and they are reading the letter to you. So it was very important, the repetition of sounds and words would catch your attention and drive you back and forth to the argument that the author has. So we see that also here, uh, the repetition of words in verses 1 through 4 and then 5 through 11. So why is that important? So we don't remove the text out of context. This beautiful passage in verses 6 through 11 about the nature, the person of Christ, the work of Christ, cannot be removed from the context. So I ask you, what is the context? Unity that comes through humility. It's the humility that will produce the unity that's so vital in the local church. Jesus died to bring unity to the church. That's the argument of Ephesians. To make His people one. That's why you go through the New Testament so many exhortations about the unity in the church. And what are, what are we to do with those who are not preserving the unity, those who are disturbing the unity in the church? Paul says... Don't have contact with them. They are perverting the gospel. Also, it's interesting as we see the verses 1 through 4 and then 5 through 11. Look in your Bibles. Because I mentioned that to you when you were going through verse 1. Here's the indicative. Chapter 2, verse 1, you have the indicative. 
what God has accomplished for us. Therefore, that leads to the imperative. And now in verse 5 through 11, Paul reverts that. It's the inverse. Now he has the imperative and then the indicative. Paul was a genius. And one of the things that are very tempting to remove our attention if you start studying this passage is the whole theory, it's the whole abundance of literature saying that this passage is an early church hymn. So one of the things that it can be pretty distracting is when you start studying this passage and all the arguments and all the theories about this passage, verses, especially verse 5 through 11, being from an early hymn. Has anybody here studied Philippians 2, verse 5 through 11? Has anybody ever heard that this is an early church hymn? Okay. No. Yeah, so, and then the question becomes, okay, who wrote the hymn? If that's an early church hymn, who wrote the hymn? Uh, was it Paul? Was it somebody else? Why is Paul dragging this piece of the hymn into his text? And I used to believe that was a part of an early church hymn until I started studying and studying and studying. And three major scholars helped me to shape my view. Gordon Fee, amazing. He's a Pentecostal, egalitarian, uh, Armenian, and a dear brother in Christ, faithful theologian, Love him. Gordon Fee, Frank Thuman, and Stephen Fowle. Those are the ones who shaped me to help see. And for example, here, here's the... Uh, so if you have the NIV, if you have the NIV, I really like the NIV, but if you have the NIV, you, you see how they translate as if it was a hymn. Because you see that's not following, but they structure as a hymn. Can you see how it's structured as a hymn? Not as... Just a regular letter. It's like, okay, so here we are changing literature. Here comes, just like in the Psalms. Right? That's the structure of the Psalms, songs. Why? Because the people who were translating for the NIV, they believe that's a hymn. So do you see how that affects them? So if you have an ESV, you can see it's all following. There is no uh, structure like a hymn. So it's called the Carmen Christi. The Song of Christ, the Hymn of Christ. But I'm not going to spend time here. Uh, I can send you my notes. Why I don't believe that's an early church hymn. After studying and realizing how Paul, the Apostle Paul, was a majestic and inspired writer capable of composing poetic speech in the middle of his letters. So there are so many passages in Paul that are so beautiful, so poetically structured. Think about 1 Corinthians 13. That's beautiful how he orchestrates, how he writes. And that's not part of an early church hymn. I believe it became afterwards, but was flowing from his thoughts. Or for example, Romans chapter 11. You can turn to Romans chapter 11. Look at this beautiful section. Oh, verse 33. It says, Oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. Now he quotes the Old Testament. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So you see how Paul, when he's talking about Christ, he gets this excitement. He becomes a poet. And he writes beautiful things as he's thinking about the work of Christ. So, uh, even though... I don't think it's part of an early church hymn. I think we should sing this 
passage, just like we should sing other portions of the Scripture. It's a beautiful, beautiful text. Uh, here's how we can structure this text. Uh, chiastically, structurally, you can do, you can see verse 6a, Christ Jesus is God. And then you have 6b through 7. That's how Paul is dividing here. Jesus descends and he takes the form of a man, of a slave. It's going down. And then comes to the center. Jesus dies on a cross. And then you can reverse. Now Jesus ascends. If in the first part he descends, now Jesus ascends as king. And Christ Jesus acknowledges God, Lord. Uh, yesterday I created another one. And I want to invite you to go home and you can try to create your own chiastic structure here of these verses. And you see once again, and I don't have the capability of changing, but I would like to do like this, this chiastic structure, because it's from glory to the cross to glory again. That's how Paul is structuring his, his example of Christ. Uh, here's the outline of this sermon and the next sermon. We're going to be looking today at the exhortation for the mindset of humility. And then next Lord's Day, we start looking at the example and then the enjoyment of this mindset of humility. So, verse 5. Look in your Bibles. Chapter 2 of Philippians, verse 5. And here is the ESV. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. And scholars call this the crooks interpretum. It's one of the most difficult verses in Philippians to translate and to understand. It's a very difficult verse to translate. I agree with Stephen Fowle when he says the obscurity of the syntax in Greek means that almost any translation into English is also going to be an amplification. And you see that by the different translations. So I have a, a, a just so you can taste how difficult this verse is to translate. And, and you can do that at home. You get different Bible translations and you see how the different Bible translations translate that verse and you're going to see if there is much difficulty or not in translating that verse. So here, for example, we see a, a great variety of, diff, of translations. So, for example, the NIV says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. The New Living Translation says, You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Now, the NASB says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. But look at, that, look at the ESV. Have this mind among. Huh. The NAS translates as in yourselves. The ESV as among yourselves. And look at the ESV. Which is present. Look at the NASB. Was. The ESV doesn't translate the also. So... You might say, what is the purpose of all this? God calls us to worship Him with our minds, with our brains. It's so easy for us to want something simple. Give me something simple. I just want to feel good. And many times, even with the knowledge of Greek or Hebrew, you will have to struggle and use your mind, try to understand what the author is saying. And that's what happens when we come to verse 5. So here, I want to help you to see, as I was translating... The difficulties. I think it's important for me to show you how I get to where I get. So the Greek verse, chapter chapter 2, verse 5, has this. Then you have the imperative. Look at the fronel there, but in the imperative form, in the plural. This, think, and then you have the 
Is it in or among? Because among is referring to the congregation. In is individually, in each one of the members. Yourselves, which also in Christ Jesus. Do you see that there is no verb to be in Greek here? So we must add to make sense. Otherwise it makes no sense whatsoever. That's why every translation is interpretation. So questions become, in you, what is in you? Among you or in you? How about this? This refers to verses 6 through 11 or verses 2 through 4? This. This what, Paul? Then he talks about in Christ Jesus. Is he referring to the example of Christ or is he referring to union with Christ? Then there is the lack of the verb to be. Is it was or is it is? Because there is a big difference. When the translation translates was... Do you see, they are looking at the following verses as Christ an example. Because Paul now is showing the mind that was in Christ. If you take is, they are just thinking about the union with Christ. And often, as if these verses, the following verses have nothing to do as Christ an example for us. So, it's important to keep context in mind and understand that verse 5 works as a bridge. It's the bridge between verses 1 through 4 and then 6 through 11. That's crucial to understand. Gerald Hawthorne, he says, verse 5 is the transition from exhortation to illustration. This verse means that the hope for attitude outlined by Paul in verses 2 through 4 is now shown in Jesus Christ. So, if I can help you, that's how I translate this verse. Looking at the verse, this you think, in, among yourselves, and he's talking about the preceding verses. Do nothing from selfish ambition, nothing from vainglory, but in humility, counting others more significant than yourselves. Look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. This mindset of humility, that's how you must think, that's how you must have among yourselves. And then you have the which in Christ Jesus was or is, And I would say both, because Jesus doesn't change. And I think that's why Paul leaves verbalists. Christ was the humble king, and He is the humble king. He is a humble king interceding for us, taking care of us. So it's our union with Christ, because we are in Christ, that enables us to have the same mindset that Christ had in the past and has today. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 2.6, Paul says, For who has understood the mind of the Lord? So as to instruct him. And then he says, but we have what? The mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. So, and I think it makes sense as I'm studying through the context that Paul here is, the next verses, when he's talking about Jesus Christ, he's using Jesus as an example of what a humble mind is. Because some, some, I'm serious, some scholars come and they say, do you know what? Verses five, verses six through eleven have nothing, has nothing. They have nothing to do with presenting Jesus as an example. That's just a piece of beautiful doctrine about Christ that Paul puts right there. And if you look at the context, Paul starts giving four examples of what a, a, a humble mind, a mind that's always willing to put others above themselves, is like. He gives first Jesus Christ, then Paul gives his own example. Then he gives the example of Timothy and then the example of Epaphroditus. 
So you can go home and read the, the whole chapter and you're going to see how Paul is presenting four examples of people who have this humble mindset of putting other people above themselves. I think it makes a lot of sense. So if you think about the flow of the text, imagine Paul, imagine you're sitting there for the first time hearing the words of Paul being read in the church and the exhortation is powerful. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full accord, one mind. Do nothing, nothing, nothing from selfishness or vain glory, empty glory. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. No, 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 not looking to your own things, but looking to the things of others. I gotta think about the congregation. Wow, Paul, that's completely contrary to our lifestyle. We are Roman citizens. It's all about us being above other people. It's all about others serving us. So can you imagine their mind, the confusion, the crisis? We were raised, our parents, our grandparents raised us to see ourselves as Romans living in Philippi. People must serve us. So can you imagine in their minds the questions, natural questions in light in light of such unnatural demand. Paul, how far should we go on this path of self-sacrifice? How humble are we supposed to be, Paul? How low are we supposed to go in order to put others above ourselves? How low is this humility that you are asking from us, Paul? Show us, Paul. And what does Paul do? Here, let me show you how low you must go in your humility in order to preserve the unity that the Trinity accomplished on your behalf. And he gives the example of none less than the King of Glory. That's what Paul is doing here. When the scholar says, the best way that Paul can encourage his friends in Philippi to live in humility and so to have true fellowship and unity is by reminding them of the example of Christ. I really like what Kent Homer says. He says, the great example of humility is Christ Jesus. Listen to this. Although verses 5 through 11 contain one of the outstanding Christologies in the New Testament, they were written to illustrate the point of humility and selflessness. And then the question becomes, should we use Christ as an example? Should we use Christ as an example? And there are some good, faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who are going to say, no, we cannot use Christ as an example because that's what cults do. That's what false religions do. That's what the liberal theologians do. Jesus Christ is only an example. So we should avoid as much as we can using Christ as an example. One scholar says, the biblical notion of the imitation of Christ has been suffering under a variety of misinterpretations. And I would like to give you three erroneous or misleading interpretations of the example of Christ. The doctrine of imitatio Christos, imitating Christ. The first one is the rep, trying to reproduce as much as possible the suffering of Jesus. Okay, so, and let me give you an example here. Uh, Francis of Assisi, Francesco de Assisi, everybody knows, he's a clear example of someone who was trying to imitate Christ in relation to living a life of nothing. So, Francis of Assisi, he, he came from a, a family that had money in Italy. He forsook 
the family inheritance and decide that you follow Jesus, He had to forsake everything, have no pleasure whatsoever, and He started begging for bread, kissing people with leprosy, and calling for the simplicity of life. For Francis and his followers, the imitation of Christ involved an attempt to reproduce as nearly as possible within their context Christ's life of wandering, poverty. Is that what the Bible calls us to do? So that's the first misleading interpretation of the imitation of Christ. The second one is that Jesus is only a good example. So think about the Enlightenment. 17th, 18th century, we have the Enlightenment. What happens during the Enlightenment? Our minds are enlightened. Now we know better than ancient people. And this idea starts propagating in seminaries and the professors start to deny what? The life of Christ, the miracles of Christ, the, 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 the death, the atoning death of Jesus Christ. They say what? Oh, those were primitive people, uneducated people. Now we know that there is no such thing as that. So Jesus is just a good example of a rabbi in Nazarene who loved people. So, that's what's big into liberation theology. Jesus is a good example of liberation. So we must go and start liberating people who are under oppression. That's much of the social justice right now in our culture. Uh, we were talking about that Friday, the emergent church. And that's flowing from the liberal theologians and the idea that Jesus is just a good example of someone who tried really hard to help others. And we must follow his example. So Jesus could never be a good example if he wasn't God himself. A liar, a deceiver is never a good example. And then there is the last one. That's the last extreme. Is the one I mentioned earlier. Our faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who say, no, actually we should not use Jesus as an example. That's what the liberals do. That's what the false religions do. And when we start using Jesus as an example, we start eclipsing. We start putting aside the doctrine of justification by faith. So we should not use Jesus as, a, as an example. He's only Savior. Never an example. So I disagree with all these three. I think... When you go to the New Testament, you go through the pages of Scriptures, it's very clear. There is no dichotomy. There is no division between justification and following Jesus as, as an example. It's actually the opposite. Those who are justified, those who are in Christ, therefore, they must now imitate Christ Jesus. They must follow His example. As we think about ethics, that's part of Christian ethics. What is ethics? We hear a lot of, about being ethical. Is this ethical? What is the subject of ethics? I'll give John Frame's definition. I think it's excellent. He says, Ethics is theology viewed as means of determine, determining which persons, acts, and attitudes receive God's blessing and which do not. What is ethical and unethical, but what pleases God and what doesn't please God? He goes on to say, So human ethical responsibility is essentially to imitate God. The imitation of Christ is also a major theme in biblical ethics. And it's important to remember, Paul in the New Testament never calls us to imitate Christ where we cannot imitate. There is never a call for us to be omniscient, omnipotent, 
There's never a call that we are supposed to calm the storms with our words. We are never called or commanded to die for people in a in an atoning manner, as if we can forgive other people's sins through our death. Paul is very clear in the rest of the New Testament that we are to imitate what? The mindset of Christ. The fronel. Have this fronel in you because this fronel was in Christ, is in Christ. This way of thinking, looking at things. Remember, it was big back in the day. What would Jesus do? Do you remember that? People would have the bracelets. What would Jesus do? You see, the, the imitation in the New Testament, in the Bible, is not just doing what someone does. That's not this type of mimicking, but it's much deeper. It's having the heart, the mind, the way of thinking, the affections, therefore causing you now to do what Jesus did, what Paul did, what Timothy did, because you are thinking, you are feeling, you have the same way of viewing things. So I believe that Philippians 2, 5, as we are coming to verses 6 through 11, it's Paul's way of saying, now you need to imitate Christ. I commanded you to be of one mind, one heart, one soul, one mind, doing nothing from selfishness, looking at others' interests. Here is this type of mind. And now he gives the example of Christ for us to follow. That's very important. What Paul is doing here is what Jesus himself did. Look at Jesus did in John chapter 13. Do you remember they're all gathered together? It's the last meal with Jesus. Jesus is about to die. John chapter 13. He sent the disciples to prepare everything. They prepared everything, but they didn't prepare their hearts. They're arguing who is the greatest among them during the dinner. Look what Jesus says and what He did. John 13 verse 12. When He had washed their feet, you remember He behaved just like a slave. He removes his garments and he puts the towel around his waist as a slave. And now he's going to wash the nasty feet of those obnoxious brothers. That's what Jesus is doing. Now imagine walking barefoot in Palestine in the first century. How clean and beautiful those feet were. And Jesus now bends just like a slave. And he's ready to wash. And he washed their feet. And then he says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments... And resume his place. He said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. And you are right. Yes, I'm your Lord. I'm God. For so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example. What? that you also should do just as I have done. Here is Jesus declaring, Are you mine? Are you my disciple? Do you belong to me? Therefore, you live like I live. Serve like I serve. One scholar rightly says, David Gooding, he says, Here we have the heart secret of Christian ethics. It's not a question simply of keeping rules and regulations. The true believer will increasingly feel impelled to treat others as Christ has treated him. Has Christ forgiven him? Then he will stand ready to forgive others. Has Christ washed his feet? He will seek to wash other people's feet. Has Christ laid down his life for him? Then he ought to lay down his life for others. Following the pattern of the Master. And notice, that's not an option. It's a command. 
It's an imperative. It's not an option. It's not an option for Christians to, hey, you know, uh, yes, that's a noble idea, but that's okay, not for me. Every single disciple, every single Christian must be striving and growing into the likeness of Christ. Look what John says. How do I know if a person is saved? Right? How do I know if a person is saved? Can I tell if a person is saved? Culturally, we always say, no, we can never tell if a person is saved. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible gives us clear teachings about the fruits that a Christian must be producing. Look John says, First John, By this we may know that we are in Him. You see, union with Christ. Whoever says that he abides in Christ, Oh, I'm a Christian. He must what? Walk, peripatel, lifestyle. You must walk the same way in which Jesus walked. That's not an option. That's not an option. So many Christians think that's an option to look like Christ or not. Not according to the Bible. If you are in Christ, you must walk like Him. If you have union with Christ, if you belong to Him, then you better live like Him. So many people profess to be Christians and live like the devil, like Satan himself. And we think it's okay. It's okay. And then the person dies. And suddenly, everybody who dies is in heaven. That person never walked like Christ. And suddenly, now we want to put him with Christ? Look at Paul. Same thing. Romans chapter 15. He's exhorting for harmony and unity in the church. And he gives the example of Christ. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to have the same mindset. Here's the Fronel word. With one another, in accord with Christ Jesus. Therefore, welcome one another as what? As Christ welcomed you. How did Jesus welcome you? How did Jesus welcome you? How did Jesus receive you? Was his arms back? Kind of sideways. Where he had his arms wide open receiving you and loving you and bringing you close to him. And that's how we are to love one another. Welcome one another. Receive one another. Just like Jesus received you. Are you serious? i got to receive Nestor? Like Christ received me? Yes. And Nestor is thinking, I have to receive Guga? And the Lord says, yes. Yes. In Ephesians 5. Look how Paul does once again. How do we love one another in the church? Look how Paul says. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now you're children, therefore, you can imitate your father. And walk, look at the lifestyle, peripatel. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Are you saying that Jesse is supposed to love me as Christ loved me? Yes. Yes. How about husbands and wives? What is the standard? What is the standard, Paul? How should I love my wife, Paul? Husbands, love your wives. As whom? Johnny, who lives on the other side of the street, loves his wife? No. As Christ loves the church. Are you kidding, Paul? No, I'm not. That's the standard. Cannot go lower. Once again, when Paul is telling the people in Corinth, very selfish people, to look to the interests of others. Look how he says. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to your brothers, to Jews or Greeks, 
Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved, be imitators of me as well as I am of Christ, in not seeking my own interests. Another example that all Christians must follow, receiving the, receiving the Word of God with joy in the Holy Spirit, in the midst of affliction. And you became imitators of us, First Thessalonians 1. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Here's how. For you received the Word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. How did they become an example? By imitating the example of Christ. And how were they imitating the example of Christ? Look at the text. By receiving the word with much prosperity, with much affliction. Look at the Colossians. Paul says, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other. How? How are we to forgive one another in the church? How are we to forgive one another in the church, brothers and sisters? Can I hear that? As Christ, as Christ Jesus, as the Lord Jesus Christ forgave, forgives, and keeps forgiving us. When you repent and you ask the Lord to forgive you, do you think He has a, a book where He keeps all the records there of your sins? It's nailed to the cross. And your sins I will remember no more. How are we to forgive one another when there is repentance? Now, we can't forgive if there is no repentance. We can have a forgiving spirit. We can never forgive a person if there is no repentance. But once there is repentance and there is the asking of forgiveness, how should I forgive? Just like Christ forgives me. And even in the area of giving. That's amazing. That Paul doesn't give the pattern or the example of the Old Testament in 10%. Here, brothers and sisters, do you want a pattern how to give to the church? Here's the example, 10%. That's not what Paul does. Do you know how much you should give? Look at Christ. Look at Jesus Christ. How much did He give? To follow the example of Christ Jesus is not an option. To have a life marked, for, uh, illustrated in following the fronel of Christ is not something for a minority in the church. Every Christian, every Christian must be growing in the imitation of Christ. For we know, we love the passage in Romans chapter 8, we know that all things work together for good of those who love Him. It seems like we stopped there. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be what? To be conformed into the likeness of the Son. So, if my life is not marked by this growing in conformity to the image of Christ, something is messed up. So, wait a second. Are you saying that I need to be an example of Christ to others? Are you saying that the way I treat my kids at home, my wife, my co-workers, my church, I must be imitating Christ? What does the Bible say? Yes, brother. Yes, sister. Yes, here's a standard. Here's the example. So, I want to finish here reminding you and maybe now causing you to think as Paul and the rest of the New Testament have all these exhortations, these commands for us to be like Christ, to have the mind of Christ. And for some people, that might, might sound like burdensome. Are you kidding me? But I hope and my prayer 
is that as you think about all these exhortations for us to be like Christ, my prayer is that your heart would be overwhelmed with joy, just like mine was yesterday, as I was thinking about this, thinking about the power of the gospel, this beautiful gospel that came into my life, removed that sinful, nasty, evil heart, and gave me a heart of Christ to love Him and treasure Him. And now, all these commands to be like Christ sounds like music. Because I can. I can be like Christ, imitate Him, follow after His steps. Once the Gospel conquered me, once the Gospel took over me, I couldn't before. I couldn't before the grace of God came and rescued me. But once the Gospel comes and conquers our hearts, draws to Christ, draws to the cross of Christ, those imperatives become a joy. That's awesome. Now I can imitate Christ because I couldn't. The only person I could imitate was Satan because by nature was children of wrath. Or as Paul says, a child of the devil. Or as Jesus says, you are of your father whom? The devil. Meaning, your, your paterner, pa, paternity determines your activity. Who your father is will determine how you behave. So for me, as I come to this, have this mindset in yourself that was in Christ, is in Christ. And that's such a joy that now I can imitate Christ because I could never do that before. I could just imitate other children of wrath. I remember reading about this fascinating story of putting a donkey with lion cubs. Because the mom lion will take the cubs to learn how to hunt. And they put the donkey, the little donkey, with the cubs. In the hope of what? Maybe this little donkey will become a hunter. Guess what? His daddy and his mommy were a donkey. But you see, when the gospel comes and brings a regeneration leading to adoption... Now we have the life of God in us. Therefore, we can and must grow into the likeness of Christ. That's the beauty of the Gospel. Lord, we are truly humbled that You would save us and change us. By nature, children of wrath, hating the things of God, as Titus says, and hating one another. But in Your grace, in Your power, You came in the Gospel of Jesus. And You delivered us from Satan, from the kingdom of darkness, from ourselves. And we give You all the glory. Lord, I thank You for a church in which its members strive to be more like Christ. And I pray that we would continue, we would continue encouraging one another to be more and more like Christ. Lord, I pray that people would come to this church and see Christians those who belong to Christ. And Lord, for those who are here and they don't know Christ, maybe they think they know Christ, I pray they would conquer their hearts, Lord. Help them to see the beauty of Jesus and the beauty of the life lived in union with Christ. So be merciful to us, Lord. Help us. May our lives be consecrated all to You, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.